Hello, and welcome to Dirt NC. I'm Jed Byrne. Dirt NC is all about the places and spaces of North Carolina and the people who make them awesome. Today, I'm joined by Brent Wattis. Hey, Brent, welcome to the show. Hey there. Thanks for having us today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Um, we'll get we'll get right into it. We'd, we'd love to hear just kind of you know I put put elevator pitch here on the questions, but we'd love to hear kind of a thirty second overview of, of who is Brent and uh, what is Brent up to these days. Yeah. So uh, I am a human man. Uh, I guess to go on the big overview, but I'm start. the leader of Bot Build. We've got a great team, and what we do is we build homes with robots. And what that really means, uh, to get a little nitty-gritty here, is we take two-dimensional plans like blueprints, we scan them into our system, and from there it generates through a series of computer technologies that we've developed, not just a three-dimensional model, but an entire panelized system to build wall panels. And then from there it automatically sends to our robotic teams and specialized tooling the ability to build those walls with robots to get shipped to a job site. So basically we just take home framing that can take anywhere from one to five weeks and bring it down to just a couple of hours using our specialized system that's enabled by uh, artificial intelligence and computer vision. Awesome. Awesome. That Well, we will absolutely be digging into all that. And and where, uh, you know, this show is about North Carolina, but where, where in North Carolina are you located and, and where is BotBuilt located? So I am at one of our bot built offices right now in Durham, North Carolina, right by the Duke Forest, uh, for those of you familiar with the area. And I personally actually live down in Pinehurst, North Carolina, if you can believe it or not. Uh, but I travel so much for the job, it doesn't really mind that it's a longer commute than, than most people would find acceptable. But Pinehurst <laughs> is a special place, too. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it, I imagine, even for folks not terribly familiar with North Carolina, most people will know where know about Pinehurst and where it is. But what what is how long is your commute? Because I'd heard that. But how, how long does it take you to get into Durham if if you if and when you go? Uh, if I'm driving a truck, it takes me about, you know, 75-ish minutes. And if I'm driving a car that I've modified slightly, it takes me about 65 minutes. Okay, but good. let's keep that between us. That's right. That's right. The toilet, yeah. Luckily, this is a private conversation. <laughs> no one else is listening, so it's all good. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, That's so, what I like. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a commitment of a commute, but uh, one, one that you're happy to do. So with that, let, let's take it back a step a little bit, and, and we'll get into more of, of the details of what you're up to these days. But where um kind of before as you, as you got into your professional life where did you go to school where did you study and and kind of what brought you to bot built how did you find bot built or bot built or how did bot built find you uh it's a good question i went to a lot of different schools actually i've, I've always kind of been very academically minded i enjoy education so I guess originally, if you want to look at my bachelor's program, I went to Arizona State University where I studied uh, empirical political inquiry. Uh, from there, I also did some graduate work in Jewish studies and ecofeminism, both at Arizona State. Uh, ecofeminism, as most people are aware, is just looking at uh, ecological issues from a feminist rather than patriarchal pedagogy. Uh, so, you know, basic stuff there. And then I studied business and technology later in life at Georgetown University uh, up in Washington, D.C., which I really enjoyed. Uh, as far as what got me to bot built, uh, in all honesty, it's uh, just one of those things that's rather, you know, coincidental if you believe in such things, uh, in the sense that my cousin is married to a genius named Barrett Ames, who is one of my two co-founders, and he has always been working on cool robotic, you know, just what I will call amazing tech, right? Stuff that I don't necessarily fully get to play with every day, but when I was uh, in the army, I took some time off after selling a couple of businesses. 
Uh, so we built up an RIA, we built up a SaaS company, I had done some consulting in the political realm, then joined special operations for about a decade because I just wanted to give back and, and my wife and I, with our two daughters, have a little bit of an adventure, uh, see the world and, and serve our country in uniform, which was a ton of fun. I was working uh, here at what we call the Flagpole Special Operations, and uh, at least for the Army, mm-hmm. uh, near formerly Fort Bragg, now Fort Liberty. And my cousin started giving me these crazy ideas that he had of utilizing off-the-shelf robotic systems to change the way that construction happens. And just so your listeners understand, construction is something near and dear to my heart. It's where a lot of my investment goes. It's where a lot of my previous business experience led me to. But I've always been frustrated by the labor shortage and, quite frankly, the way that we treat labor in this country, uh, which I find rather abhorrent. And so the ability to augment that labor shortage with robotic technology is important to me. Uh, but what really intrigued me about his pitch to me was the fact that he wanted to use a software-based technology to enable the robots to basically, for layman's terms here, program themselves, hmm. which means we don't waste weeks and months reprogramming robotic lines every time a design change happens, because as some of your listeners might be aware, on occasion, change orders will take place Changes in happen. construction. Yep. It, it Indeed, it does. And so it's important to not be having to waste a ton of time and capital on that. And the other side of it was uh, he believed strongly through his conviction and research, uh, he was teaching at Duke University at the time, that he could actually make different types of tooling systems, enabling off the shelf, like literally we buy our robots used on eBay robots to build, you know, very complex systems without us having to reprogram them every time. And so I was intrigued. We did a lot of research, built kind of a business plan, I was at the time out of uniform uh, by 2020 at this point. I'd gotten myself, uh, uh, to be honest, pretty injured uh, while deployed in the Army and uh, developed epilepsy. So I was no longer allowed to serve in uniform, but I was doing consulting work at JSOC, uh, which is still a lot of fun for me. You know, had my dream job over there. But this was something that intrigued me greatly. So we put together a business plan. Uh, by 2021, we entered into uh, an incubator out west called Y Combinator. It's a big tech incubator for investors and technology companies to come together. And we, from there, bought some robots and got bot built off the ground. And that's uh, that's kind of where, in all fortuitousness, I, I found my way. Awesome, awesome. Well, I, I will say I love that we live in a time, and I didn't know this until you mentioned it, but like, I love that we live in a time where you can buy robots. And I, I've seen pictures, and for those who haven't, I'll, I'll make sure to include links, but you know, these, these, what are they? 2,500 pound robots off of eBay. Like I just, I think that's yes. a, what, what, what a time to be alive. Um, right. before, I mean, you should get one for your house. It, <laughs> it makes a great centerpiece for Thanksgiving. I just think it's appropriate, especially if you have kids, they love robot rides. <laughs> they do go play with a robot for a bit. We'll, we'll see you in an hour. Exactly. Um, exactly. Before that, that may be a, a more in-depth conversation with the rest of the household, but I would, I would love one. If you, if you got a small one, I, I have a townhouse. So if you got a small one, let me know. <laughs> I might be able to take it off your hands, Perfect. but before, before we go any further, you mentioned a couple things in there that I want to dig into, and I'll try to go kind of in reverse chronological order, but JSOC, what does JSOC stand for? Yeah, sorry. Uh, JSOC is Joint Special Operations Command. It's just okay. a, uh, it's got a cool history. I encourage your listeners to kind of read up on its history. It kind of was formed uh, after the Iranian hostage crisis. The United States government wanted to put together all the best of special operations Uh, under one roof after basically, uh, if those of you that are old enough or have read about uh, the the disaster that was a rescue attempt, what had happened was the DOD just kind of tapped different spec ops groups to say, hey, 
go, you know, rescue these hostages. And so they all had to work together, and it went horribly because yeah. uh, you might have heard that the Army and Navy don't always play nice, and then you include the Marines, and we just get all confused. And then the Air Force is there, and they're smarter than us, and we don't know what to do about that, so we just kind of complain a lot. Uh, but by putting it all under one command that was kind of under SOCOM, which is Special Operations Command with the DOD, it made it a lot easier for us to coordinate efforts and you know defend freedom in a very specialized way and do very highly specialized missions in a way that's impactful and coordinated, more importantly, because we all have our subspecialties. You know, us Army guys don't want to get anywhere near your boats in the Navy. Uh, so it, it made it a lot easier for that to come together, and and it's a a passion project of mine to help support those who are willing to serve in that command. Perfect. Thank you for for that, um, both the service and the explanation. Um, you also yeah. mentioned, I guess, in your in your previous business life, RIA. What does RIA uh, mean? Yeah, sorry, Registered Investment Advisory Group. Got it. Okay. And then and for your la- listeners at home, by the way, Jed warned me not to use uh, acronyms and jargon. <laughs> and here we are. We're, we're and, and, and I told you, listen, we're, we're both holding up our end of the bargain. You said you would use them and I, and I said I would ask for clarification. So it works. Amen. Amen. Um, Call it out. La- last but not least, uh, and this is going way back to from your education. What is, and, and if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize, but empirical political inquiry. What the heck is that? Uh, well, that is like when a political science degree and a mathematics degree love each other very much. Uh, uh, they they have a child known as empirical political inquiry. So it's a it's like looking at the statistical analysis of political data basically, to derive more of an understanding of opinions, behaviors, subsets, etc. Uh, just by looking at the numbers. Basically, think of your uh, your pollsters and your analysts. That's that's what that degree uh, was leaning towards. Got it. Okay. Perfect. Cool. Well, I yeah. like the, the the benefit of this show is as I get to be uh, curious by nature, and that's that's one of my uh, hobbies in life is being curious and asking questions. So this brings it all together. So I, I get to ask questions and I get to learn things. So I love it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you mentioned earlier labor and construction and and caring not only about um, you know labor shortage and, and kind of the the business aspect of it, but it sounds like a, a lot of a lot of your your interest is in the people as well, um, and the mm-hmm. impl- implications of this work that that we're involved in on people, both both sides, you know, from the from the homeowner or resident, and and the people who are you know out there every day building homes for people. Um, when when would you say is is one of those? And it doesn't have to be the most impactful or, or the first memory, but. What's a memory of yours that that really kind of started to drive home this importance of whether it's the construction industry or people in construction? But but if you were to think back, what what's kind of one of those first most impactful memories that you had? Well, quite bluntly, I think what drove me to be so passionate about bot built was honestly uh, when I was a little bitty kid. I'm talking like three or four years old. My parents, who were just amazing human beings let me play with computer equipment. And this is back in the early 80s, right, where that's very expensive and very hard to do, but I had a knack for it. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, who's a World War II vet, and he's like an ag science business leader at the time, sees his little like grandson playing with computers and just thinks to himself, uh-oh, better toughen this kid up a bit. So he takes me on a road trip out to Texas to go visit some ranches that he works with and, and just, you know, just make a man out of me, right? So he's a little bit afraid I'm going to be a, a little too nerdy for his taste. And that's, that's fair. It was a different time and age. And when we're going through El Paso, Texas, it was the first time in my life I remember seeing a homeless encampment. Mm-hmm. 
And it just blew my mind. Once I asked him, you know, some an inquisitive little kid, right? So I'm like, hey, Grandpa, what's that? And he's like, those are homeless people. I'm like, what the heck is homeless? Yeah. And uh, Grandpa Virgil takes the time to explain to me, these are people that don't have a home. And I'm, you know, I, we're not rich at this point in my personal family. My granddaddy is. I'm in his 1979 Cadillac Seville, chocolate brown on chocolate brown. You know what I mean? We're living a good life. He has two fridges. He's rich. And I, it like blew my mind and crippled me to think that like I could have so much in America yeah. and these people could have so little that they can't even have a place to sleep. And while we're out there, I remember driving by not only them, but then this is the middle of Texas summer and watching construction workers work. And I just thought, my goodness, that is not a life I would choose for myself. So we're, there were two things kind of happening in my brain and it would take a while for me to get the emotions and the the understanding of my own thoughts and feelings to really solidify this, but it, it made me realize one, we as a country have so many resources. It is incumbent upon those of us that have the ability to provide homes to the homeless, to provide shelter and to do it in a way that is not, in my personal opinion, government led and government focused. This, this has to be done in a way that is not communist or socialist. We've, we've been down those roads before and we don't need that nonsense. Uh, but from supply side economics, we can handle this. And then the other side is to make the lives of those who build the world around us better and easier. Uh, because the stat that I love off the OSHA website that will haunt, I, I hope, haunt those that hear it, is that just for the record, in uniform, those of us that were in the uniform services during the height of the war in Afghanistan, we would lose about 35 people on average per year. That is a horrible stat. You hate losing a soldier. Uh, it's it's awful when someone dies and you have to notify their family. Uh, worse, though, is that you are 10 times more likely to die building a home in America than you are in uniform in the height of the war of Afghanistan, which blows my mind that that is an acceptable form of doing business here. So we have to make construction safer. And, and those two driving entities in my head and my heart, the ability to end homelessness by increasing the housing supply and increasing housing affordability and along with that, obviously, then taking the those that are willing to serve us as building the environment around us and giving them a safer environment in which to work is what fuels what we do here at Bot Build. Yeah, I uh, I I have heard that you you mentioned that stat before, and right, it it is kind of mind blowing. Um, never never prior to you saying it, I had never heard that statistic before, and and um in in my professional career, I had a a stint in construction, um, working on, in a, in a tank farm and a refinery in Texas. Oh, and, yeah. and it was, um, I'm, I'm ever grateful that the company I worked for had the foresight and fortitude to put, uh, you know, you mentioned your grandpa didn't want you to be a nerd, right? So I, I was an engineering graduate and came out of school and, you know, was soft and squishy and had been, you know, inside all my life. And so to have us go through a rotation in the field where whether we stayed there or not, everybody, um, got the chance to experience what it was like to build the products that we were designing, I think was, was a total game changer and, and something that I, I would encourage if, if, I mean, I just, I wish everybody had the opportunity to do that even for a short period of time, because you just gain such an appreciation for, um, you know, right now, right. I'm sitting in an air conditioned office and, um, you know, doing work and, and it's just not the same when you're out there in the cold, when you're out there in the heat, um, the sun and, and just that's, that's not even including, that's just the elements. That's not even including the, the physical nature of the work. So, so that's a huge eye opener. Um, and then I also like that you mentioned, exactly right. um, the, the kind of money memories. I'm always fascinated by how invasive money memories are into people's lives. And just they you know, a lot of our, I think 
early memories tend to be money related. And you said your, your grandpa was rich because he had two fridges. My wife always tells me growing up, she thought she grew up in Florida where there was a lot of single story homes and she thought people were rich if they had stairs. Like that was her, that was her definition. Well, if you have stairs, you have two stories, therefore you're rich, right? So if you have two fridges, you know, that's, that's more than you need. Therefore you're rich. I I like that a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the the uh, so so I think we'll we'll get into now that we've got a bit of the the groundwork laid and a bit of the background I'd like to get into bot built um, and, and you, you mentioned a little bit about what you guys are working on but there there's a few kind of pieces I want to make sure we hit before we get into it and and just this is, this is not my background so so these are kind of preliminary questions but you mentioned uh, computer vision or CV in in kind of third grader language how do you think about computer vision or what is computer vision CV? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Computer vision is just the ability to take images and have it be processed by a computer system of some kind, software of some kind. Okay. Uh, and so when, when we use this just for applicability sake, we take pictures and images of the framing that we're building. So the wall panels with dimensional lumber, and if that's a boat or bench or warped piece of lumber, the computer image shows the robot what it needs to do to bring that to the center uh, to put that stud in the right place in spite of it being an imperfect material. And and in in this application, is the camera on the robot? Is the camera above the robot? Is it both? Where, uh, where is the where is the the camera in this? Usage? Well, it's technically both, but in this, what we're describing, the uh, camera systems are actually on the tools that we've developed. So our robots uh, have a tool belt. So they can pick up different things like our stud plate connector or sheathing grippers or routers for rough openings. And those cameras are on each individual tool, allowing the robot to see as it goes and, and create images and create and collect data as it goes along, uh, up close and personal with the materials it's interacting with. Interesting. And, and so those will those tools swap out as, you know, just, just I would exactly. assume like an arm. If I'm picking up a tool off my tool belt, I'm switching out tools every time, I'm not holding them yeah. all. Yeah. What's brilliant about the human machine is how flexible it is and different types of building that we can do as humans. And we wanted our robots to uh, mimic a lot of that behavior, have the ability to swap out and switch up, not have to be replaced by or added to just to do different, you know, basic setups that you would see on any job site. Perfect. And and you mentioned earlier too, um, hardware and software. How how do you guys differentiate in, in your application? What, what's the difference or where do you draw the line between hardware and software? Or maybe maybe that's a bad question. What are examples of, of hardware versus software in, in the bot-built world? Well, in our world, the hardware is pretty obvious, right? Those are the robots themselves. It can actually be the tooling systems that the robots are using. It's a lot of the tabling systems that we've developed. So hardware literally is, you know, the, that which is physical and tangible uh, to the, you know, human eye and human touch. The software side of the house is what drives all of those platforms. So Software can be anything from our system that takes plans to panels, and it can be anything that takes those panels to robotic code. Those software lines are, you know, things like, you know, software examples like Microsoft Word or, you know, uh, you know, the browser that you might be using. That's all code lines that create images on your computer. Well, the code lines we use for our software do the same thing, but they interact with our hardware in a way that's meaningful. Got it. And then, and then, last but not least, because um, this is kind of the topic of the day it seems but artificial intelligence yeah. um and that, it, like it's it's a it's a big it's a big topic but what what is artificial intelligence in the bot built world and, and how is it used or not used yeah that's that's a great question because i think right now artificial intelligence is most used as a marketing ploy um, but 
you know, all jokes aside, it was, it's really just the ability for machines. And, and in this case, a lot of it is software, right? To learn from past experiences and build what I would call a, a sense of reasoning, yeah. right? A sense of knowledge from that experience that it then applies into future uh, actions that it might take. So in our case, uh, every time a robot decides to move a certain way for the most efficient path possible to build a certain type of wall, we're collecting that data. Every time it takes a picture, we're collecting that data. Every time we've got a certain type of plan, it is learning as it goes, as it builds that out uh, into a panelized system. And that knowledge base, uh, you know, depending on the, the nomenclature you want to be using, but that knowledge base is basically like a, a giant decision tree, the same way that, that humans have to a degree. There are certain things that, you know, artificial intelligence really hasn't grasped quite yet. These are things that we might consider to be more muscle memory or more innate or instinctual. Uh, but for things that are more empirical in value, right, the, the average board is this, this code base requires this. Uh, computer systems really are growing quite quickly in a world that I think will be, you know, creating a lot, what I will call better tooling systems for us using software that employs uh, some form of machine learning or artificial intelligence. And and is that, I would assume that the, the knowledge base is cumulative within the walls of bot built, right? So if I'm, if I'm the robot and I'm building a hundred panels, right, I'm learning each time you know, I'm adding to my data set. Are you also bringing in external data sets or, or is this all internal intelligence? Oh, we are actually. No, we, we do bring in external sets. Some of that is in the form of, you know, imagery. Some of it's in synthetic imagery, which is a whole rabbit hole we can go down later. Um, but there's, there's in addition to that, things like just ingesting as many plans as possible so it learns as many variants as possible. There's a lot that goes into training or teaching uh, to kind of give it a human sound to it, uh, that actual network of learning systems. Got it. And so so with those kind of building blocks, I guess pun fully intended, walk me through um, the, I don't know if it's the process or, or just, you know, if, if, if I've got... Um, if I've got a vision for a house, right? So I've, I've made a house or I've laid out, I've, I've drawn a house out. I've got, I, I know what I want my house to look like. What, what is the, the basic process, you know, kind of the bot built process? How, what, what do you, what are the inputs that you require? And then what are the outputs that, that you guys deliver? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, most of the builders that we work with today, they'll send us their stamped off plans, right? These are typically PDFs, think blueprints, right? Just basic house drawings. It has dimensions on it. has a scale available to it. Uh, if they have some type of what I call cool guy tech, they've got some CAD drawing or they've got some digital imagery from some other, you know, architectural firm that they work with, awesome. But if they've got the bare bones, which is just a, a basic blueprint PDF, they send that to us. Uh, from there, we put it through our system, and the system right now, it takes some uh, basic knowledge from that plan, and it starts to read into that plan, and a human will sit there for a few minutes and kind of click through, making sure that all the things that are said on that plan are accurate. So, you know, I, on occasion, you'll get a blueprint that is just, frankly, wrong in dimension or wrong in scale, right? We've all seen that where, like, when you measure it out, the stairwell would actually go through the floor for some reason, right? So, yeah. We just look at those sort of systems and make sure that everything's good. And once it's there, we let a series of systems that we built, these are software systems that use a huge level of math 
to start to a build out a 3d model of what this home's framing would look like so we are right now a wall framing company so when you think about how a a house with dimensional lumber is framed it's basically just taking that two-dimensional you know top-down view and turning that into a huge 3d model of every stud placement every top and bottom plate every nail placement every piece of sheathing the doors the windows etc and within a few hours from that 3D image, it's then done a couple of outputs that are very, very important to us. The first is, and we get a little creative with our marketing, so for all you marketing experts out there, prepare to be wowed. Uh, for the book of panels it creates, we call that the panel book. So yeah, I know, just yeah. let the awe set in for a second there. So this panel book is important because it allows us to QAQC with the builder. Hey, this is your door and window schedule, right? And each panel for those walls, and a panel just for your listeners at home that aren't familiar with building with panels, uh, it's basically a system of building where each wall is pre-constructed uh, into certain smaller subsets. The doors and windows are on it, and it has everything marked and labeled. So there's panel one through, let's say, panel 70. And they can go together based on, you know, panel one intersects with panel three at X point here. That's marked and labeled with a, uh, a basic printer that we use for the lumber here in the factory. Uh, and all of those things are put together. So once the panel book is established and the builder says, yep, that looks like my house, perfect, great, we send that panel book over to the robotic software system, and that actually changes those panels into goals for the robot to build. So it will look at panel 27, and it understands what that panel needs to look like when it's in its end state. And from there, the robots get busy uh, doing what they do best, which is working with a series of technologies to actually build that individual wall panel. And this is where it can become... Uh, very easy to explain, very hard to actually understand the math behind it, but that robot will start running through its schedule of how to build that panel with its tooling systems. It will then take from either the dimensional lumber bunk or the header bunk or the pressure-treated lumber bunk or the sheathing block, depending on what it's doing at any time. will call, it will take an image, it will understand which piece of lumber it wants to pick up, goes and takes it over to its saw system, it cuts that lumber to its exact dimension. From there, it then puts that onto the uh, actual table of building and then starts to assemble that dimensional lumber into a wall frame. So think about, you know, top and bottom plate studs 16 on center or a door with a two by 12 header, whatever it might be. It starts to assemble that wall. The wall is then labeled and marked appropriately based on the plan. And then that's sent over to the other additional table where it's stacked on top of other panels, part of that system, and then shipped off to the job site on a flatbed truck. Uh, so that the framers can then get it. They have a one-page document out of that panel book that is, I don't want to oversimplify this, but it's essentially like building an Ikea home at that point. It just has, hey, here's where panel one goes to panel two, panel two goes to panel three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the builders will just take a look at that one little sheet, and they'll start standing up those panels that are stacked in the right order for them, and it takes them a few hours, and then boom, you have all of the walls for that framing, sheathing and interior walls done, so you can put a roof on or start to stick friend the roof and you are set with a weatherproof home. So so you mentioned that's one that sounds amazing. Um and you mentioned the roof is I would assume from your description the um you guys are focused currently on walls only so so flooring and subflooring right. and roofs and above are not part of the system. I mean is that is that a future goal or is that always you know is the core of the kind of 80 20 80 percent of the issue is in the walls so let's get that figured and focus on walls how, how do you think about other framed components of a home 
uh, roofing systems we're currently working on as we speak. So that is in our uh, immediate tech roadmap. And from there, we'll be able to do flooring systems as well. We're doing things a little bit differently on that. And hopefully our patent attorneys will get some stuff done soon. I'll be able to talk a little bit more about that. But yes, roofing, you know, uh, I think especially in single family homes, I, I believe roof trusses that are pre-manufactured and shipped to the job site make up somewhere between 70 and 80% of the market. So that's that's a, a definite need for us. But in the meantime, we are typically, all the builders that we work with just buy their trusses separately. Yeah, okay. That, uh, I mean, that's just a more or less off-the-shelf component for their designs. And then those are already getting sure. shipped to uh, job sites. Exactly, um, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm by no means a building code expert, but I would imagine in, in going from a 2D to a 3D in a wall panel, depending on location, geographic location, you know, whether you're building in Texas or North Carolina or Maryland, you may have some different uh, code requirements. Is, is that a fair assumption? And, and do your softwares pick that up? Yes, that is a fair assumption. And yes, we pick that up. So we use a, a digital code base based on the city, state, municipality, county, whatever it is that that is the overriding, you know, if you're building on the coast, you're dealing with different wind codes. If you're yep. dealing, you know, in, in Texas, you're dealing with a completely different environment than, you know, the hurricanes of North Carolina. So being able to scrape that data in and make sure that that framing is built to those specifications is very important to us or else you're basically just devaluing whatever that engineer stamped off on. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's a good question. And good then, question. and then you mentioned the, <laughs> the Ikea, you, you mentioned your, your marketing and your naming, and then you mentioned Ikea. And I just got to imagine if, if you really want to compete with, you know, the Ikea home, you're going to have to get much more creative in your naming schemes because they, you know, they use some interesting language. Not, I'm not suggesting you do do that, but, but <laughs> they're in a league of their own. I've been saying for years that if, if we don't have a home called the Bloatdorf, what are we doing? <laughs> exactly honestly, right. What are we doing? Are, are you Come even on. in business? Um, Thank I, and, you. <laughs> with, so, so it, it, the, you know, the panels are are built. They're put on a truck, and you mentioned right in the order that they they need to be received in. So again, you're saving you're saving effort, you're saving time, you're saving labor on the job site, um, and and they're being shipped by truck. I assume what uh -huh. what um, what constraints exist within wall panels that you can build, right? So I mean, is is there a is there a wall height or a wall length, or I mean, are, are there are there just just real world constraints that you're dealing with or or is it kind of open to whatever needs no, to be absolutely there are there are definitively constraints and we also allow ourselves in the the net that we've built basically gives us the ability to change our constraints based on that individual builder's need right and so one thing that we have one builder that we literally just shipped off a home for this morning uh, it's going in the Raleigh area here. Uh, they want to be the greenest home builder on earth, right? So their constraint is for efficiency. So whereas they're usually filling up a dumpster or two mm -hmm. uh, filled with all the waste cuts and miscuts of materials for the job site there, we filled up a couple of trash cans because our robots know exactly what to order and what to cut because we get a cut sheet in that panelist and we get an order sheet in that panelist. So there's no real waste of material. The other constraint side for a different builder that we have in Northwest Arkansas that we built for they have very limited labor. This is like, think Fayetteville, Bentonville, Northwest Arkansas, right? You're talking Tyson Foods, Walmart, J.D. Hunt, all these huge companies. They've had massive growth out there mm. without the necessary labor. So for them, if you're talking about three people framing an entire home, that's taking them, you know, one to five weeks to frame that home. That's a lot of, of work for a very small number of people. They told us, hey, those framing panels better not be more than eight feet long. 
Because with sheathing, you're talking a couple hundred pounds. Right. And those three guys aren't going to do a very good job of standing those up. So we put in a constraint, and it actually works out well for us. We found that that's actually a more efficient way to build. For larger things like balloon walls, et cetera, we just break those up into subcomponents, basically, that then the final constraint is, of course, with the Department of Transportation. There's a shipping regulation. And so if you're putting it on a, you know, a hotshot flatbed or on a large-scale semi, there are still width and height requirements that we have to meet. So we can't just put you know, the biggest thing possible on there without going into specialized shipping, which just adds costs and, quite frankly, is wasteful from a fuel perspective. So we try to keep that uh, within more normal bounds of the DOT. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, you, you mentioned uh, in, in previous interviews that I listened to that kind of the three issues that Bot Built is, is working on, um, and again, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong here, are addressing speed of uh, in construction, mm-hmm. addressing safety, and addressing costs. If you, if you could kind of run down why do you see those, and, and or if there are other um, issues and opportunities and challenges that you, you feel Bot Build is addressing, what, so you know, what are those issues and, and why is it important to address them? Yeah, you know, speed and cost are things that go hand in hand nowadays, especially with the current interest rate environment. <laughs> So for us, the ability for them to frame that home in an hour or two, you know, just getting all the walls up and then a couple more hours to put it all together, it makes a huge difference to the builder when they're able to take that dirt and turn it into a transferable product known as the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a huge time savings for them, which translates into a huge money savings. And that's in addition to the money savings when you're not having to have the overage orders of lumber that you'll see at the job site that take place because, hey, guess what? That Sawyer's going to miss a cut or someone's going to mismeasure something on the job site. Mistakes happen. And when that happens, that's real money going out of developers' pockets, and that's that's a real problem. As far as the safety goes, we'll go back to the IKEA model here. When they're putting together the blur turf and it's you know all coming together nicely, it's a much safer environment when you don't have a saw running at, at nonstop incessant levels and then having to be up there and putting together these framing pieces in a way that is often quite dangerous is, you know, you're your experience out there probably gave you some insight to. Yeah. Um, and then the the other thing that I think that needs to be addressed that we are addressing that uh, isn't necessarily part of the business model, but it's part of the future model. And that is just the ability to bring more people of the up and coming generations, both into the trades and then bring more what I'll call mechatronics or robotics training into the trades themselves. So we see robots as not just the future, but an inevitability on job sites, in job sites, or in the construction realm. And what we are very passionate and working hard on, uh, right now anyway, is putting ourselves in contact with the right trade schools, the right trade companies, the larger construction and development companies, so that their workers can have experience working with robotic systems, and that the schools, the trade schools, et cetera, can have more experience uh, recruiting people to know that, hey, it's not just swinging a hammer or being a carpenter. You're going to work with robots in the future. We, yeah. we want that to be a, a recruiting tactic. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, my parents definitely threatened me with going into the trades, right? Yeah. You study hard, you do your math homework, or else you'll end up like one of them. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Arizona, which meant 120 degrees outside framing houses. That was not appealing to me at all. Um, and what that's done is it's created an entire generation like mine that ran like hell, from those trades, we need to correct that problem. We need to get folks back involved in the trades. And it's a lot cooler, I'll be honest, when you see a 2,500-pound bot swinging that hammer for you. It's a lot of fun to watch. And and so that, that brings up, um, I, I think segues really nicely into this thought of, of a lot of times, and we mentioned AI at the beginning, um, but a lot of 
a lot of what I see in the conversation around AI and robotics is this this concept of, well, you know, the robots are going to take jobs away or AI is going to take jobs away. And I, for one, again, I don't have all the background and I'm not all that smart, but I've looked at just human history and even, even my own history. You know, we've got, you know, smartphones in our pockets that should make us way more productive. I'm still working, you know, a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I think that humans, and, and maybe there's, there's someone who's actually studied this, but I, I just get the sneaky suspicion that, that humans are really good at creating work for themselves. And so I'm not terribly worried about um, robots and AI taking jobs, because I think like anything, uh, it's a tool. And, and when we have access to tools, we don't tend to do less work, we tend to do new, different, and, and arguably better work. And so, but, but you're, comments, if I understand them, take that uh, even a step further. It's not only, well, the robots aren't going to take our jobs, but if I heard you correctly, the the robots and the technology might actually increase availability of jobs and increase accessibility of jobs uh, to whole new groups of people. Is that, am I, am I off base there? Absolutely spot on. I mean, there, there have been a lot of studies on this. Uh, shout out to Dr. Eric Holt at the University of Denver, by the way, who's done a lot of this, especially particularly in the construction realm. Uh, but frankly, the, the dearth of labor out there is so huge. <laughs> there are no jobs for us with robots to take. Like people yeah. will not sign up for these things. We need more folks to come to these jobs. And the, the way that you talked about that as a tool is exactly right. One of the great case studies of all business schools and for your younger listeners, I'll, I'll try to break this down a little bit, too. Uh, back in my day, uh, when I was your age, Sonny, we used this thing called cash, right? And that cash you would get from the bank. And you'd go to this dude at the bank and you'd say, hey, I need cash. Here's my account information. He would check my identity and he'd give me that cash. Well, these things came out called ATMs. And these are things that are probably going the way of the payphone right now. And your uh, younger viewers can look that up on Wikipedia. <laughs> What's a payphone? You know, <laughs> exactly. The, the ATM would suddenly be this thing that a lot of people in banking, especially tellers, said, oh my gosh, that machine is going to take my job, right? And it's that old old school argument. Yeah. What actually happened was it freed up that teller to do more advanced things for the banking customer, allowing them to have shares of commissions when they're selling other products like mortgages, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Do things other than just count out $20 bills over to someone when they can just do that with the machine. And that elevated the entire work of that individual. And what we'd like to see, you know, whether it's software or hardware technologies as they improve, and, and as history has shown time and time again, yes, humans will find a way to, to increase the work with the technology tools available to us. And that is exactly what these are doing. We're, we're able to make the life of the construction worker better uh, through this technology. And I, I'm telling you right now, one of the best anecdotes I saw so far is I was meeting with a uh, a tribe here in in North Carolina, actually a Native American tribe, and one of the tribal leaders at this council we were talking with, because they build a certain number of homes for tribal members every year, and they were thinking about working with uh, different technologies. They wanted to talk to us about what those tech would look like. And one of the tribal leaders told the lead construction uh, member of the tribe, "Well, what about the jobs? I mean, your job sites employ folks here. It's going to take those jobs, won't it?" And this builder just slammed his hand on the table and he was very adamant. He goes, what jobs? If you have folks that can come to my job site today, you send them. Yeah. But I need help. And this is all I got. Yeah. 
So it was a, it was telling to me that he's feeling that labor shortage in, in a very acute way. Indirect, indirect. Um, if we, if we could, I'd, I'd like to, and I meant to ask this question earlier, so sorry to get it out of whack. But you mentioned Y Combinator, which um, I've heard about. You know, and you hear lots of of companies going through that program. Would would be interested mm -hmm. to know, um, kind of maybe look looking in the rearview mirror. How how is the bot built of today different than the bot built that went to Y Combinator? And and maybe a, a sub question or related question in there is is what did you guys learn or take away from that experience? Uh, yeah, so the bot built that went into Y Combinator, uh, I used to call us dudes in a deck uh, because we had a dream, we had a pitch deck, uh, we had the idea, we had the math, but we didn't have any of the uh, you know them robot things we kept talking about. Yeah. And Y Combinator really did a couple of things for us. One, it put us in touch with a huge network of technological talent. Uh, one thing that Paul Graham and his team over at Y Combinator have done a great job of is kind of assimilating uh, people in technology and leading engineers uh, into the same rooms to have discussions about what it takes to build up a business, what that next-gen technology should look like, how to run a business with next-gen technology, and addressing true market needs you know, one of my favorite phrases that they use at Y Combinator is make something people want. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot of engineers, a lot of cool guy ideas, but is there a market for it? And they do a good job of shaping you into what that market needs to look like. Uh, the other thing that it did for us is, is it elevates the brand status a little bit, especially, you know, obviously, I don't think the average development company is sitting there going, oh, my, you were part of Y Combinator. My gosh, we need to eat. No, they don't care. But for the technologist out there that's thinking about, I need to go into a career in robotics or AI or computer vision, what, what type of company should I be working with? When they see that Y Combinator pedigree, it makes us a, a much more viable option for them. It sees that we have kind of passed the sniff test as far as the, the elites. And it, it was a great program to put us in touch with a lot more broad scope talent and help bring them, for your listeners in particular, uh, here to the Triangle in North Carolina, letting folks know that, hey, you can have a a great life, a great house, and, and beautiful surroundings here in North Carolina, and work on cutting-edge technology. Yeah. Uh, and that's really where, where Y Combinator came in handy. Awesome. Awesome. And and you mentioned um, throughout this conversation, builders and clients. Who, who are your main, uh, I guess, clientele? I mean, when you're, when you're pitching bot-built to folks who are, who are buying... I assume, I guess, I guess what they're buying is is the wall panels, right? So when they're taking delivery, who who are those um, folks? Who's your target market? Uh, target market is right now single family home builders. So typically, you know, folks that you'd see on the Builders 100 yep. that need to improve their speed and efficiency or reduce their overall costs and want to augment that through components. Uh, so basically, just about any home builder out there, you know, we're willing to talk to. We're we're way overbooked on orders right now as it stands, but we'll be expanding into a third factory soon to be able to start accommodating more of that and then move into, like I said before, other technology like roof technology and then multifamily and other uh, types of construction here in the near-term future, which is important for us. But yeah, we've, we've talked to just about all the big leaders. I'll be blunt, like when we started this company, I thought a lot of my role as CEO was going to be convincing single-family home builders, especially the large production builders, to use wall panels. What what we learned rather quickly is that most of the biggest, uh, if you look at the top five of the Builders 100 for single-family home builders, had already moved into using wall panels as that kind of unlock for faster builds. Yep. Um, their complaints were what we were addressing, right? And that's, yeah, wall panels have been around forever. There are factories all over the nation, right? It's nothing new. It's nothing novel. 
What's novel is the ability to have them just send us their plans and have us pump out the panels without spending weeks or months reprogramming the robotic lines every time there's a change to those plans. So for them, it's the unlock, the ability to say, I'm going to have these 600 plans. Can we build 600 different types of houses? Yes. Yeah. I don't have to sit here and have my guys go through each permutation and reprogram everything. That's done using a computerized software system uh, that is genuinely novel. So it basically unlocks that for large-scale builders and small-scale builders alike without them having to worry about the huge typical timing issues of re-engineering an entire plan set that they've already paid to have engineered once. Yeah, and I, I like that quote. One, it's what's good to hear that uh, you guys are oversubscribed and, and the, the selling is working, but I like that, that, that quote from Paul Graham of, of make something people want, right? That, that makes the selling a lot easier. If you're, if you're solving a real problem and a real pain point, which it sounds like you are, um, the, sales, the sales flow a little bit easier. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so one of the things that, that I think might come up in this conversation as well, when people hear about this technology, and again, you, you just kind of reiterated the real game changer, the real unlock is, is maybe on the software side of, of adapting and changing as the plans change or as there's updates. Um, so you don't have to reprogram the bots every single time, but from a higher level for folks who are maybe on the outside looking in, you know, wall panel sounds a pretty similar to a modularized construction technique. And even, even you mentioned, right, that the panel technology has been around for a long time. Everyone's already using it, or the big the big builders are. How, how does mm -hmm. what you're doing differ from what folks might think of as traditional or, you know, this, this modular construction um, or prefab construction that, that's existed for the, you know, the yeah, last couple decades? Yeah, I've, I've always felt that, uh, you know, words really matter, especially in, in things like when you see like prefab or factory built. You know, I think when you look at like volumetric modular, that's the building of, you know, entire rooms or a half of a home being shipped down the highway on a truck that we've all seen. Uh, there's always been some quality questions with that and some well, what I'll call kind of a, a societal disconnect between like that being a quality home and you know, a lot of us just think of the words mobile homes, right, or trailer parks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for, for us, really, it's important to note that, yeah, this has been around for a long time. Building wall panels themselves is basically, when you're looking at uh, what we'll call site-built or stick-built uh, houses, that's when the lumber just gets dropped off on the job site, sits out, of course, through some of the worst weather you've ever seen, because that's the rule whenever you're building a house, and then eventually some guy gets your stuff and starts putting it together. What they're literally doing when they're framing a house is building the wall panels and then standing them up. But they're doing all of the cutting, the measuring, all of the assembly right there in the outdoors on the job site. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, what I would call a little bit cheesy analogies. Like if you ordered a car from Ford and they just shipped you a box of parts, is that really, you know, how you want it done? No, you want it built in a factory with precision, with, with engineers around, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's what Bot Build does offer. But to a higher degree, we're literally duplicating or replicating, I should say, what would typically be done on a job site using antiquated tooling systems and antiquated, you know, just tape measure and hope, basically, and using robotic precision to put those pieces together in a way and then just flat pack shipping these walls out. Uh, and it's not volumetric. It's, you know, when the, the big joke about when you're shipping something like a, a mobile home, you're shipping 90% of that as air yep. uh, that costs you a ton of money. Whereas when you're shipping wall panels, you can fit just about an entire home on a 35 foot hot shot towed by a, you know, 2,500 Dodge Ram. 
And having that go down the freeway is a lot easier knowing that all of those things fit together with precise motions so that there's no guesswork on the job site, which then, of course, eliminates the error that leads to A, cost, and B, time loss, uh, and then eventually perhaps failed inspections as well, which leads to more of cost and more time loss. So that's, that's really the differentiator in using robotic technology to do that and taking what exists as a market in wall panels and changing the quality levels through new tooling systems like computer vision. That's I appreciate that explanation and differentiation. You, you mentioned um, previously the wh- where you thought you'd spend your time as CEO is a little bit different from where you're currently doing it. Um, how do you spend your time? Like what, as as a as a you know technology slash construction startup, um, hardware software. I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that you guys are doing. What is your, I don't know if it, I always say it's not your day because I'm sure your days look different, but where, where are you spending your time from a, a week and month basis um, in, in kind of the the current version of the company? Because I'm sure it's changing, you know, month over month and year over year. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we're talking more internally, a lot of what I'm doing is helping to optimize our team here. So we have, we don't have a ton of employees, but the ones that we have are brilliant, gifted individuals. And one thing I'm a huge believer in is optimizing whoever you are to the best of your ability, right? So it's getting to know the team and helping those team dynamics, which are so crucial to success, in my opinion, really come out. So I spend a lot of time just helping my folks understand who they are as people, helping them work together and collaborate in meaningful and impactful ways. And then the other side of that uh, equation then is more external. And that's me talking to builders, developers, leaders in technology and really getting that lay of the land, that outward focus so that we are always kind of going and shooting the puck to where the skater is going to be, not yeah. where it is presently, so that we're future-proofing a lot of our technology and locking into the real market need of that future. And then the the last thing that I'm doing is is really just kind of what, what I would call evangelist work, right? I am spreading the good news of using robotic tools in the future of construction uh, everywhere I can go, whether it's at, you know, giant conferences like Blueprint or IBS, or it's at, you know, in front of Congress with the NAHB and NASB uh, talks coming up next month. Uh, it's it's all about really just getting in front of more folks and helping them understand that the future is here. And we really need to help the future generation embrace that in a way that is meaningful for the built environment around us. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, and, and I guess as a, as a follow-up question to that, and this is a bit of a of a two-parter, uh, when you're externalize, when you're externally talking to developers and builders, what is what is that? What is the kind of like the number one priority? What what is the message that you're trying to to get across? And then what do you see as the biggest hurdle to having that engagement? Uh, the main message I'm getting across is that we're we're coming and we're right. here to help. And so the more data they can give us, the more you know we we don't have capacity yet, but we will soon to start building out, you know, hundreds and thousands of homes. And we're wanting to make sure that that is in line with their priority systems when they arrive. Uh, so really that's part of that conversation. As far as barriers to that, there really haven't been many. What's been interesting to me is that most of the bigger builders have really moved into the world of innovation. And what's interesting about that is how many have followed suit. So even smaller builders are looking towards any type of technological edge they can get Mm -hmm. uh, to augment their labor crises that they're feeling to whether it's improve their product or speed up or hasten their ability to grow and expand their product lines. 
And so it's been, uh, I guess, less of a, the only barrier I really have with that is time. I just don't have enough time to talk to them all <laughs> as much as perhaps they'd like me to. And so it's just about, you know, prioritizing, you know, gator closest to the boat, so to speak, and then moving forward. I like that. You, you threw me off with gator closest to the boat. I'm going to have to steal that <laughs> sorry, expression. I've never, I've never heard that before. And, and I think that's a good way to think about things. So, so if with you that, want to improve your lexicon, join the army. It will, it will teach you. It will teach you things so that you don't look like a, my personal favorite, a Johnny bag of donuts at the end of the day. There you go. There you go. That's uh, one, of, one of the things when I was in grad school, somehow I managed to have a bunch of, I, I do not have a, a military lineage and, and do not have uh, many service members in my immediate family. So, But when I went to grad school, I, I managed to interact with a bunch of uh, men and women who served in the armed forces. And it was it was an eye-opening experience to be sure uh, and learn, learn lots yeah. of things. So I'm that, sorry for that, but yes, <laughs> it's, it's 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 all good. What um, what about what about? And you mentioned um the future being you know thousands of homes. Where where are things today from a maybe a production and productivity standpoint? And then and then what is what what does that future look like? I mean, where where do or when I say we, you know, where where does where does Botbuilt go from here? What does that future look like? Yeah, so I I would you know very much so put us in this just emerging from a lot of research and development on the wall panel side of the house. We've got our software system up and running. One thing we did over the last year, which is very important, is prove out that we can buy our robots off eBay, that we can use different brands of robots without issue. Mm -hmm. And that's been a huge lift from a technology standpoint of kind of changing the, the status quo, the paradigm of how current people think about robotic systems in general, that it has to be one brand and one software and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what's, what's next for us now is... Uh, we're starting to meet with potential business partners to expand our footprint here in North Carolina and build out a larger factory, uh, both here and in a couple other states that we're working on with a few other partners so that we can start putting in more robotic lines. Our robotic lines are very, uh, well, compared to the status quo of robots currently in construction, they're a small footprint. So it's two robot arms, and they can see this on our website in a little video there, botbuilt.com, two robotic arms moving in a little 30 by 30 square using all sorts of different tools, picking up from their individual lumber bunks that just loaded in. And it's very easy for us to put in multiple lines under one roof mm -hmm. uh, without taking up a ton of space. And that can be operated by one individual person in that factory, just overseeing things, making sure, you know, uh, no Terminator 2 style events happen. Uh, the, the real expansion point for us there is just getting those factories put in place, getting those robots on order and starting to expand our wall panel production. From there, it's about taking our R&D facilities here in Durham and taking on the next level, which, of course, is those roof truss technology systems that we're working on currently, and then expanding that business line so that we can actually be providing more of the whole home of framing and eventually moving into what I will consider more the multifamily and then commercial uh, with different materials, et cetera. And, and with commercial, do you see that as ground-up construction or is that upfit interiors or both? Uh, it will likely start with ground up construction, but, uh, you know, the, the future is unknown at that point. And so we'll be kind of working through that as it comes. But for me, that's, that's where I see it in the immediate future, I guess, at that next expansion. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, well with that, is, is there anything that, um, just given all the things we've talked about, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you wish we had? Well, uh, no, I mean, we've gone through a lot. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, it's brent at botbuilt.com. Feel free to send me an email. Go to our website if you want. Check us out. And also, uh, just buy yourself a gosh darn robot on eBay and enjoy life a little bit in your house.
Kids will love it. It's a talking point. It's a center point for the whole home's furniture. That's right. Ro- robot sales on eBay are about to spike, I assure you. Um, and, and with Boom. that, the kind of, I guess, the, the last question from a from a a call to action, so to speak. If you could have, you know, the folks listening, do something, say something, you know, um, and it could be something big or small. Go read something. If, if there was a call to action that you would give to the folks tuning in, what what would that be? Boy, uh, for this audience in particular, come talk to us about collaboration. The call to action is about collaboration. Everyone within the built world environment, real estate development, construction development, we have a lot to offer and we cannot be siloed. I would ask that everyone that is listening to this, just we need to start working together. The market is gargantuan. We're, we're, there's money to be made all around, but the better that we can work together, the more we're going to improve the lives of those who do the actual work, which in turn will create a better environment and pipeline for the labor of the future, which means hopefully two generations from now, they won't be talking about a labor shortage, uh, but instead they'll be talking about sustainable development in a way that is meaningful and impactful. And that is my genuine hope through collaboration today in building a better tomorrow. Yeah, no, I, I can't agree more. And I, and I think that, right. You, when you solve the, when you solve the, um, problems at the lowest level right the gators closest to the boat it gives you the opportunity to to up level everything and just have it having instead of having a housing shortage or a labor shortage right it's it's now how can we be more productive or, or create newer and better things or how do we um, address other issues and I, I think that's absolutely right it's just kind of marching up the hill um and and the collaboration piece to me again i, I cannot um emphasize how important i think that is as well and just sharing ideas sharing thoughts and I think that there's a there's a part of the business environment or the world really that thinks about you know holding on to ideas and keeping things closely guarded. But I've seen time and time and time again how much just sharing ideas. Right, if you've got if you've got one set of skills or assets or abilities and you share that with somebody else, you know one plus one equals three, and you can have just these amazing innovations happen. And that doesn't that I just don't believe it happens as well or nearly as well when when people are being closely guarded, not collaborating, not sharing. So. Um, with that, I mean, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing what you have to share. Thank you for teaching us all about these robots that you've got over in Durham building, uh, building houses. Thank you for, uh, your service and, and yeah, just thank you again for your time. I appreciate it very much. You have a good one today.